Uh, welcome, everybody, uh, to this uh, one of our official launches for the new uh, centre here uh, at the LSE called Ideas. I'll be one of the chairs tonight. Uh, the other is uh, Professor Arnie Westad, my partner in crime, and the other director of, of Ideas. Uh, last week, I had the uh, honour of chairing uh, Fred Halliday's last lecture at the LSE on behalf of the International Relations Department. And tonight I have the equally great honour of chairing Professor Paul Kennedy, the first holder of the Philip Ramon Chair, on behalf of Ideas, a new centre of diplomacy and strategy uh, recently established here at the LSE, whose launch Paul is helping us celebrate tonight. Now, Paul Kennedy, as I have discovered uh, over many a pint, and I took him to the Arsenal last week, uh, Paul, as I've discovered since he has arrived here, is a modest man uh, with very little to be modest about. <laughs> uh, born in Newcastle of a, an Irish working class family, Paul had, I have discovered, two career choices back in the 1960s. Either to become a journalist, uh, one with a deep and abiding interest in horse racing, or an academic. <clears throat> as he noted in an interview today published coincidentally, in the London Guardian, um, I'd been earning some pocket money as a bookies runner, he said. So I knew a lot about horse racing from the inside. So I wrote to Lord Thompson, asking for a job on the Sporting Chronicle. Well, he didn't get the job on the Sporting Chronicle. He offered me, however, a job as chief sub-editor and racing correspondent, and I was all set to start. Well, things went badly wrong there afterwards. Paul discovered uh, that he had achieved a first in history at his first university in Newcastle, the first first for 11 years, he told me. And there and then, he was quite literally packed off to St. Anthony's Oxford to do a PhD. Well, the racing fraternity uh, might have lost the great tipster, uh, but the academic community acquired an even greater historian. And great and influential Paul has undoubtedly been since his first job at the University of East Anglia and his second at Yale, where he holds the J. Richardson Dilworth Professorship in History. One major book followed another, Strategy and Diplomacy, 1983, The Rise and Fall of British Naval Mastery, The Rise of Anglo-American Antagonism, 1860 to 1914, uh, The Realities Behind Diplomacy from War to Peace, and most recently, The Parliament of Man, the Past, Present and Future, of the United Nations, published in 2006. But it would be fair to say that the one book that made him a superstar was his 1987 study, The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, Economic Change and Military Conflict, from 1500 to 2000. A fantastic book in its own right, but one made uh, famous, some would say infamous, and deeply controversial because in it, uh, Paul advanced the thesis, or the so-called thesis, that the United States, at least, only one of the chapters in this very long book, was not exceptional. In particular, may not be immune to the most basic rule, even law, of international history. that all great powers, including the United States, were in the end bound to decline. Paul, of course, is a good historian, qualified <coughs> to thesis in all sorts of ways, but the message that people took away from his study was clear. America was on the way down. Now, Paul wisely decided not to try and rebut the many critics and criticisms that came his way, and there were several. None more vituperative, I suppose, though Paul may correct me on this, 
than that penned by former U.S. policymaker Walt Rostow, who warned Americans to beware this British import bearing false historical analogies. <laughs> and so it continued throughout the 1990s, a decade of American triumphalism post-Cold War, when the Kennedy thesis, as it had by now become known, went very much out of fashion. Well, fashions change, and so too do the times. And I suppose in these very new, less certain times for the United States, it is high time to revisit the debate, and who better to revisit it than Paul Kennedy himself, defined today in the same Guardian article, by the way, as the neocons' worst nightmare. <laughs> now, after Paul has spoken, the other director of ideas, my very good friend Arnie Westad, no mean historian himself, We'll pose a few questions, and after that, we will then move on to Q&A. But with no more ado, I would like to welcome Professor Paul Kennedy to speak tonight on measuring American power in today's fractured world. Paul, over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Mick, and Arne, thank you for making it possible for me to be here in this academic year at the LSE, a place I long admired from afar, from my little nests in East Anglia and Oxford and elsewhere. It's good to be in your company. It's good to be able to join in congratulating all others at what you've done here and creating ideas and making it such a center. Um, I can assure you, ladies and gentlemen, that none of the three of us ever recognized that uh, we would be having this event on the uh, afternoon uh, coinciding with uh, Super Tuesday in the United States. Uh, you have to scramble and get what you can in terms of uh, room space and dates at this place, and this was all we were offered. But it is interesting to reflect a little on what is going on over there. The world's most uh, powerful nation is once again subjecting its poor electorate to these four-year, uh, almost four-year-long campaigns before it subjects them to another four-year-long campaign. In the midst of this, while various of them have uh, claimed expertise in foreign affairs and international affairs, uh, not many of them have demonstrated to me, and I suggest to you, that the level of expertise is, is very high at all. Uh, so we are witnessing this like half voting in of the person who will be next January the most responsible and most powerful uh, leader, like it or not. Um, it also occurred to me coming in on train today that I think this week is the 20th anniversary of when I did have to go to Washington to uh, debate the Kennedy thesis uh, with Gene Kirkpatrick uh, in front of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. A uh, highly terrifying experience. I don't recommend it to any of you. Try to avoid it if you get the invitation. But that, leads, that gives me a way in to reflect on this debate that Professor Cox referred to on American power, what it is, where it's going, and reflect on parts of the debate which have occurred in the, literally exactly two decades since then. It wasn't that there wasn't a debate beforehand 
That's a very large debate which came out of the, uh, of the war in Vietnam and of the setbacks of the Carter administration and quite a debate on where Reagan was taking us in the early 80s. So the rise and fall of the great powers did not in any case start anything new. It, it stood upon the shoulders of a debate which was already there. And as I said in that interview in The Guardian today, how can anybody lay claim to an idea that over time great powers rise and fall as being original. Uh, the Romans said it, the Arabs said it, uh, George Bernard Shaw said it, Rome fell, Carthage fell, Hindhead's turn is to come. Um, but what about that debate over the past 20 years? I thought that a way of uh, organizing it was... Um, to begin with a couple of concepts, but I, before even I do that, I want to point out the obvious, namely that, um, that this title has um, two parts to it. It is about measuring American power, and most of the talk would be about American power, but it's about American, American power in today's changing world. Uh, I've given it a title in one or two other places called Today's Fractured World or Today's Troubled World. And what, in other words, why I put in the two-headed title is that uh, it, we're not just looking at American power, something which is abstractly measured, like how many you know, inches have you left in your glass of wine, or perhaps no inches at all left in your glass of wine. It's American power and what's going on which challenges American power or buttresses American power. One of the uh, respondents to this notion of how we measure America over the long term and, and what things are important was my uh, great colleague up at Harvard. He had that time exactly the same job as I have, like Director of International Security Studies, Professor Joe Nye. And in a number of books in the 1990s, uh, Nye wrote about, he grappled with this issue as well, uh, and in one of those works, he said he thought perhaps one of the best ways of uh, grappling with what is power was to begin with a de definition, and he began with one which I have found useful ever since, which is power is the capacity to get others to do things that you would like them to do. Power is a capacity to influence people, perhaps to, into a policy position which originally they didn't want to go along. Uh, so it's capacity to influence, it's a capacity to, uh, to, to have people join with you in particular ventures. And I went on from there to say that if you thought about power uh, in more concrete ways, you could consider it as being played out relatively on uh, three separate chessboards. There's a chessboard of relative military strategic power, there is a chessboard of relative economic and productive power. And there is also the chessboard which fascinated him, the chessboard of influence and power in ideas, culture, attractiveness, what, what he called soft power. Now, on reflection, I begin to think that he didn't capture uh, a number of other significant things, nor does the current debate about where the United States is in the world. There's been, as you know, significant revival of the use of the terms imperial overstretch, relative decline. 
etc. There are still things missing which seem to me, if you are looking at the US and the world from the viewpoint of a true geopolitician like Mackinder, you would want to factor into your assessment and your measure. Uh, just the Sunday before last, the New York Times magazine had a very, very big article on, uh, on American decline, the, the erosion of American power. And it, the hypothesis there was that we are entering a, a uh, sort of tripolar world or a quadripolar world, a, a Europe, uh, an India rather than a China, though perhaps a China, and the United States. Um, and the arguments are pretty good, and it was wonderfully written, but it seemed to me that the author had no sense of uh, strengths, strengths which cannot be measured by listing GDP or showing pie charts, which I'm about to inflict you with in the next few minutes, <laughs> like you know, General Haig in the 19 days of bombardment before the Somme. There are things such as the, the fantastically fortunate geographical position of the U.S., which are non-measurable. But after all, China has 13 neighbors, not too many of which like her. The United States has uh, neighbors certainly to the south and to the southeast, which are a cause for problems, and a neighbor to the east, who has been a co uh, cause of problems ever since the arrival of Ivan the Terrible, I think. Uh, the United States enjoys uh, this geographic, massive geopolitical advantage. Um, Canada to the north, and no Canadians and ten to go into the United States, so that's safe. Um, Mexico to the south, there's a lot en passant, but uh, uh, that isn't a massive geopolitical or security issue, though some of the candidates suggested is or was. And 6,000 miles of ocean on one side and 3,000 on another. So... I'm going now to go in and look at and assess and measure these chess boards, but I do want to say I think there's more than just these things that I've chosen as part of the overall measure. Um, the first measure I pointed to was the obvious one, the almost in-your-face one, of American military power in the world today, and as it has been for quite a number of years in the past. Uh, massive, um, global, uh, impressively high-tech, impressively high-trained personnel. Uh, if you wanted to look for a symbol of this hard power, real hard power, then uh, you might want to try this. They're very hard. I used to build plastic versions, but these are really hard. Uh, Nimitz class, in other words, nuclear-powered, full uh, fleet carrier um, of the U.S. Navy. I don't know if you've ever been in port when one of these comes in. Uh, makes that big ship and Star Wars look like the local bumboat. Um, four and a half soccer fields long, 200 feet wide, 20 stories high. Uh, displacing about 103,000 tons. Um, a mixture of aircraft, helicopters, strike aircraft, patrol aircraft, air sea rescue, 60 or 70 of them. Uh, the total crew for the uh, vessel is about 3,700, 
male and female sailors in the US Navy. When you add the pilots, navigators, and the uh, aerial support staff, it, it adds another 2,000 odd. You're talking about a medium-sized town of circa 6,000 people. Only, of course, it doesn't stay still like a medium-sized town of 6,000 people. If you were lived in Hexham and Hexham kept moving 150 miles each day, you'd probably complain about it. But the point about this one is it can move 150 or 250 or more miles a day. And therefore, something I'm going to come on to in a minute, it has global reach. Now, um, the aficionati among you will notice that there's something wrong with this photograph. Professor Cox noticed it immediately. <laughs> Got me there. Got me there, Doug. Well, there's nothing else in the picture. There's no other ship. These big suckers do not go to sea without a panoply of support vessels destroyers, um, Aegis-class cruisers. I can make this work. I'll show you some. Um, this was a fleet exercise, I think. Um, but there's two of them. But what you see are, there's the Aegis-class cruiser, which can detect hundreds of enemy missiles coming in, uh, air to surface. Here are the destroyers. Here's a fueler. Here... Every um, one of these boats that goes to sea has underneath it a Los Angeles-class attack submarine. So you cannot get at it, that's the plan, from, from any direction. At least you're not intended to. Uh, Chinese are working on that. <laughs> now, if you go to Jane's Fighting Ships or something and look at the original costs of, say, the carrier, three destroyers and a couple of frigates and the submarine, plus the aircraft, uh, the cost, and this was original, so the replacement would be about six times more, the cost of it about uh, $28 billion, which is slightly more than the entire defense budget of Italy in one carrier task group. But there uh, isn't one. They're all over the place. Um, this was disposition of U.S. carriers at the beginning of September. I picked it up from the open U.S. Navy website. Um, you will see that in the bottom left-hand corner there's a number of vessels, names. They mean, that means they're having a refit or they're in harbors or doing fleet display or whatever. The rest are at sea. In the Pacific, uh, just south of Iran, Caribbean, South Atlantic, North Atlantic. I had put this together from the website because I just was heading out to Korea and Tokyo to give a talk on the measurement of China, Russia, Japan, and the United States, and I, I wanted some, some illustrations. Um, the website was created, and there's another, other websites for just individual warships so that families may link up with their family members who are on board and, and using internet connect with them. By the time I got back from my lectures in the Far East, 9-11 uh, was about to take place. And the next day, um, this thing and all others have disappeared from U.S. Navy websites. I have a historic document here. I'll sell it to the highest bidder. Um, 
U.S. Navy is very clever. Actually, it's not that clever because they still kept the individual battle group locations on. So if you wanted to waste your time in the middle of the night, which many of my graduate students often do, you could do a composition of the 14 carrier task groups. Now, there's a lot else in the U.S. Navy besides the carriers. There's all sorts of amphibious. There's all, all sorts of marine carriers um, carrying a marine uh, expeditionary force. They are the nuclear deterrent submarines, not the attack submarines, but those with the submarine-launched ballistic missiles. Um, so even here, we're not getting the full measure of, of U.S. power. Here's the sister service, which uh, right now is enjoying uh, a worldwide reach, that's for sure, uh, but a worldwide reach with very considerable uh, overstretch, if you want, or certainly strain. This was a Department of Defense um, map taken from a Washington-based uh, website, globalsecurity.org. It was before the surge. I'm not so sure that this massive number of uh, 368,900 soldiers uh, overseas, I'm not so sure that that is much increased by the surge. The surge considered, uh, consisted of smoke and mirrors, so you pulled a brigade from Korea and you pulled two brigades from Germany and you mixed things around. But nonetheless, that is uh, overseas deployments which um, are truly massive. Um, and leaving aside possibly for Q&A whether we think they are sustainable, it is yet another kind of physical in-your-face way demonstration of the projection of American force across the globe. Um, it's expensive, highly expensive. So um, the American taxpayer pays for this. Oh, actually, rather, he doesn't pay for it. Uh, it's covered by deficits. Um, it's paid for by Chinese purchasers of 30-year Treasury bonds. But it's better that they pay for that than anything else they could invest it in. Um, this is 2005. It's three years out of date. In those three years, the total Pentagon budget has gone up on average about 40 to 44 billion so that actually right now we are looking at a single country, one country out of the 192 member nations of the uh, General Assembly of the UN, which is spending approximately 51 to 52 percent of all defense expenditures in the world. Uh, that has never before happened in history. The Roman Empire had a massive Persian Empire to its east, and beyond that, they didn't know the much bigger Chinese empire. The Pax Britannica was chiefly a naval-based global reach system with a very small army. Uh, none of the European powers in 19th or 20th century, not even Hitler, the height of his powers, was getting anything like this share of the pie of total defense spending. Um, so on all of these measures at the military side, it looks as if the U.S. is nice and secure, and despite Mr. Giuliani's worries a few weeks ago, Americans can sleep safe in their beds uh, at night. What might, though, um, 
sort of upset this cosy apple chart or cart and my charts. Uh, one of the interesting things st uh, strategic writers talk about is well, if you have your pardon, I'm hitting these. If you have uh, overweening power, but the overweening power has enemies or rivals, uh, and you cannot match the size of the expenditures to challenge them head on in the way Admiral Tirpitz created a high seas fleet to go against the Grand Fleet before 1914, then you go for what is called asymmetrical warfare. You go for weapon systems which are affordable to you, um, but which are not going to challenge the big assembled organized might of the U.S. so much as find weaknesses in the system. Uh, the number one uh, threat, as you hear people at the Naval War College, uh, to U.S. Uh, primacy is now regarded as uh, definitely the People's Republic of China. It's back. It lost its ranking when, when the Bush administration came in in 2001. It was China all the way. Then came 9-11 and it was terrorism and Al-Qaeda for six and a half years. Uh, now China is back there. The last time I went to the Naval War College, I was astonished and as a historian impressed. They have opened up the room in which in the 1930s, the naval planners gained what was called War Plan Orange, which was their plan to advance U.S. forces across the Pacific in the event of what they expected was the war against Japan. War Plan Orange, which was actually carried out by Nimitz's forces between 1942 and 1945. Uh, the game room is now up and active. They've just, you know... That, uh, the, the, they, they code color the, the other side. You don't want to give anybody uh, hiccups or diplomatic cause for complaint. So uh, it is now war plan purple or something rather than war plan orange, but it's, it's a war plan. So here are the folks they're worried about. And here are some of the weapon systems which have in the past 10 years been developed by the Chinese, either by purchasing from the then Soviet Union or now increasingly from Putin's uh, armed forces, uh, modifying them and improving them. So they'll buy a MiG-29 fighter, take it to pieces, see what they can do better, put it together and then start constructing their own. Ditto with this uh, Severani class uh, armed armed frigate, armed destroyer. Huh, interesting, you can't see that. Clearly uh, picked up by a Royal Air Force Nimrod patrol crossing dangerously close to Professor Vestat's uh, village on the West Norwegian coast <laughs> as it uh, heads south uh, and around the Cape to join the Chinese fleet. That's a narrow one, aren't I? Um, medium range, 500... 500-mile uh, range missiles. Those, you know, they are developing longer ones. Uh, this is the one which uh, gives my U.S. naval friends conniptions. It's an ultra-ultra-quiet diesel uh, submarine. Uh, the U.S. got rid of diesel submarines, I think, at the end of the war, if it ever had them. They, uh, they weren't very sexy. They weren't very expensive. 
congressmen didn't get many votes for voting for diesel submarines, so they went out for the large nuclear-powered Los Angeles class, Trident class, as we would call them, etc. But these things can creep up on you uh, very quietly, very hard to detect. And now our good buddies, the world's best um, U-boat um, teams in the world, at Blom and Voss and the other Werft, Deutsche Werft, those who built those lovely submarines to attack us in the first battle of the Atlantic and the second battle of the Atlantic, have just come out with uh, diesel submarines which are coated with the technology of the coating of B-1 and B-2 stealth bombers and stealth fighters. So uh, we now have the prospect of very, very, very large aircraft carrier groups not knowing where somebody else's submarines are. Uh, so, you, as I said, it's asymmetrical, and the question of the quality of the crews must be the $64,000 question there. But what I'm suggesting is that in the years to come, we'll be trying to find, or there'll be people out there trying to find ways of neutralizing or reducing the American military footprint on the globe. India's doing it now, clearly Iran is doing it. And they're more likely to go for systems like this than giant high seas fleets. And then there's another way in which we use the term asymmetrical warfare, which is about the asymmetrical attacks of groups who are not from a nation state, not from a great or medium-sized power. Uh, here you really do get at the weakness of the superpower. Because you're not going to attack that aircraft carrier. You're going to attack the civilians, the banking networks, the students, the cruise ships. Uh, if you can hack it, you're going to uh, attack the, uh, the, the electronic networks. Uh, and you're going to use a, a variety of uh, agents, sub-agents, discontented groups, and you're going to use very small weapons not your weapons of mass destruction, which is what NBC, that's nuclear biochemical chemical weapons of mass destruction. You're going to use weapons of small destruction. Although, Lord, if you see the kind of casualties coming out of Africa, you'd have to say the world since the end of the Cold War has seen a lot, lot since the end of the Second World War. has seen an awful lot more casualties from weapons of small destruction and weapons of, of larger destruction. Um, then there's another military challenge and I'm going to stop at that one which the US is, and its strategists and its policymakers are sort of grappling with because they don't know how to figure it out and I'm not surprised it's uh, the strategic military challenges which come to the international community from the phenomenon of what we call failed states this is a Stockholm International Peace Research Institute scattergraph of conflicts in the decade of the 90s, the one for the decade of the, uh, 2000 to 2010 has, is not yet out, but it will not look very different from this one. Once again, the New Zealanders and the Norwegians will be fast asleep, not slaughtering anybody. Most of the, most of the uh, slaughters, most of the mayhem, most of the civil wars, bloodshed and genocides occurring in those troubled parts right across Africa, through the Middle East, through into Central Asia, uh, with some, some outliers. 
the major conflict definition by Cipri is of more than 1,000 people killed. So it's major, relatively speaking, because, of course, you have Rwanda-Burundi in there with 600,000 people killed. Um, the instinct of the U.S. military is to um, want to walk away from this one. Uh, on the other hand, the instinct of... Uh, quite a number of the liberal imperialists in Washington is that we have to grapple with this. These places are the breeding grounds, the festering beds for Al-Qaeda, for terrorism. Uh, these places can do damage to us, even though they seem a long way away and don't seem as threatening as the Luftwaffe coming over the cliffs of Dover. Uh, and then there's the humanitarian push and the State Department push. So what's interesting in in some of the debates, especially in the U.S. Navy, which would just like to be a high-seas fleet navy, is there's a sub-branch of reformers there insisting that they have to create newer forms of ships which are literal on the banks, on the sides of the shore, or riverine. And that's where most of the U.S. Navy's fighting will be in the future. Now, so long as Mr. Bush is willing to add... $50 billion here and $75 billion there, uh, each of these services can have each of their weapon systems. But it does suggest to me that the responsibilities of being the number one global power tend steadily to grow and they, get, they become different. They metamorphosize into different sorts of threats. And I'm not going to suggest any one of them is more serious than another. Uh, there are whole schools of thought who concentrate only on terrorism or concentrate only on the rise of China or concentrate only on cyber warfare. Uh, the U.S., because of its position, has to uh, try and prepare itself and its uh, interests across the globe for all. Still, although I've ended that chessboard analysis by suggesting there's weaknesses in the giant, in the 500-pound gorilla in the cage. Uh, when we move to Nye's second chessboard, that is to say economic and productive um, measures of power, then uh, something different is happening, as you will not surprise you. Um, the second chessboard is much more multipolar. Uh, perhaps it was longer than we think, but right now it is. The 1945 pie chart has to be regarded as uh, well, historically unique, but uh, in some ways artificial. With all of Europe and all of Japan flattened, with two-thirds of the world still under colonial domination, and with the U.S. economy having been given a massive kick boost, then... Um, having 50% of total world GDP was probably an obvious thing. Uh, the recovery of Japan, the recovery of Europe led by Germany, the beginnings of shifts of production to East Asia started this uh, erosion of the relative share. And I have to stress relative share. The uh, Total world GDP in 1945 was about $4 trillion. By uh, up around 1990, it's about 
45 to 50 trillion dollars. So when we say the US has a smaller share, it's a smaller share of a much larger pie. This is a 2006 uh, cut of the pie. It comes from the CIA handbook, the Open Statistics, which is for students, incidentally, a, a really good source. You can download an awful lot from that source, on country by country or on comparative figures. Um, my point is, whatever the, the total size in absolute terms, you are looking at a chessboard which does, is not dominated like the military chessboard by one massive figure. Uh, the rest of the world uh, is um, including um, quite a bit of Latin America, all of the Middle East. Um, I'm not sure where else, but what you're looking at is the EU and the US with roughly the same share of total GDP. And they've had that going up and down depending upon the currency exchange fluctuations. They've had that now for about 20 years. So that in economic terms, uh, Europe was equal to the US 20 or 25 years ago. And it's, it, you know, it's, going to, it's going to be like that with all sorts of implications that Americans, say, of the 1950s or 60s or 70s, just uh, didn't have to think about. Um, you may have seen that in this three-way uh, dance between uh, Microsoft, um, Google, and Yahoo, uh, the FT a couple of days ago uh, had a piece in saying it's probably unlikely to go through because the European Commission on competitiveness will, will not permit Microsoft's takeover. And now if you talk to a senator from, I don't know, Silicon Valley or from Kansas, and he was told the European Commission's uh, sub-body on competitiveness is going to stop this, he'd say this is ridiculous. To Microsoft, it isn't ridiculous. They've already paid enough in fines to the Commission in the past 15 years. In trade terms, and WTO terms, and North-South terms, and Doha round terms, you have an equal. And you therefore have to compromise. And therefore the definition of getting others to do things that they don't want to do, but you would like them to do, Nye's idea of power and influence, is much curbed on this one. And then you see the significant increase, year by year, decade by decade, of the Chinese share of the pie. Um, I always wonder, Professor Vestad, how reliable the Chinese statistics are when they report them into you know, the World Bank or uh, whichever institution OECD is measuring them. Uh, we certainly were fooled for about 70 years by the production figures of the Soviet Union. Uh, if ever there was a Potemkin village. Um, but nonetheless, we are talking about, because of China's enormous reserves, it also has clout and influence. And as this is happening, you can see certain other indicators. What, what do you think would be indicators of like longer-term trends or trends towards the future which would give you a, a comparative measure of a country's competitiveness if you're still dealing with national units like countries and not international companies. Well, the one I used to use uh, since about 10 or 12 years ago was to go to international 
telecommunications website and use the shares of world internet users. The idea being that this cutting-edge technology which is involving so many people is generating knowledge and therefore probably generating product and if you have a very large number uh, then uh, you're likely to be on the cutting edge of the spreading of knowledge and also probably making considerable profits out of having created an internet structure. When uh, first I went back to my pie charts, the first one I had was for 1998. Uh, U.S. share of world internet users, 48%. That's last year's. U.S. and Canada, that's in North America, is, is this 20%. It's not that uh, people have stopped using the un- uh, internet, etc., in the U.S. In fact, everybody does. Grandfathers, two-year-olds, etc. It's just that the sheer number of people who are now in this modern international network has grown and grown and grown. The markets have grown, and if this is an indicator of some technology which then reflects a relative commercial power of the nation, then things have changed even more dramatically in the realm of um, high technology than in, in, in the economic realm or the share of world trade realm. There are other things which are, are more consoling, uh, like this one. Uh, Another indicator of long-term relative competitiveness that has been used by UNESCO and others are, are, are things like this. You can use all sorts of, all sorts of measures, the Shanghai University competitiveness uh, measure uh, and all of that, everyone pretty dodgy. Uh, what we did here was to go and look at uh, Nobel Prize winners since... Um, 1975, we, um, oh dear, sorry about this, Arno, we took out the uh, Peace Prize, um, and we took out the Literature Prize, because they are measuring something else. So these are, you know, medicine, physics, chemistry, and the dubious science of economics. <laughs> and, uh, and it's true that among the U.S. 61%, there are people who were born in India, educated in India or Western Europe or something, and end up in the U.S. And, but they are now at the major U.S. research universities and Bell Labs, and this is certainly uh, a, a, a very fine indicator. We will have to see what this looks like in 10 or 15 years' time when you get that whole slew of state-of-the-art uh, Indian institutes of technology with return traffic scientists coming back to them and being well-funded. We have to... We'll, I, I, here's a fair bet. I, I'm a pretty honest bookmaker. I didn't want to go behind bars. But I will be a bet that uh, those two figures go up very considerably. Uh, they will follow more crude references about number of science articles published. But with that exception, and maybe one or two others you can think of... Uh, we are talking about a chessboard which is, uh, which the U.S. position is strong, but it's not overwhelming. And what's more, it carries its own uh, problems with it, unnecessarily so, in my opinion. Like that. 
causal uh, projection, the budget deficit. Uh, as I said, American citizen is not really paying for those aircraft carriers. Uh, what's happening is that the Treasury goes to the 30-year bond market each month and offers for sale U.S. government bonds. They've been picked up in the last few years overwhelmingly by surplus capital, East Asian, South Asian, and now some Arab nations. So they, now free trade economists uh, in the U.S. will say this is quite fine, those nations have very heavy surpluses of selling goods to us and um, they've got nowhere else to park their dollars so they buy U.S. Treasury bonds and they, it, it, it's beneficial on the, on the interest rates and all as well. Um, well, if you believe that sort of argument, I, I, I can't help you. Um, <laughs> just seems to me, having spent nearly... 10 or 12 years looking at uh, the rise and fall of the great powers that uh, countries with enormous obligations across the world on that number one chess platform ought to have enormous enduring strengths and productive and financial capacities on that number two one. Um, this is recoverable. It's recoverable by American politicians having the guts to alter their tax system and it's recovered by a whole number of other devices. Um, but it's there and it's, it's alarming. And the last word of what uh, Mr. Bush's final budget will be like would uh, have most Victorian bankers you know, heading for their whiskey coffin uh, just as fast as possible. It is extraordinarily Philip II type <laughs> economics. I can't think of a bigger insult. Uh, as this is happening, you well know that the dollar is changing. The dollar's position is changing. They, again, are indicators which can turn around, take some turning around. But it does mean that the sources and shares of capital in the world, available capital, money you can use. Remember, we're talking about measuring how you can use things to get things done to your advantage. Um, this was the FT last year. It just happened last year. It was only in 1914 with the Europeans virtually committing financial suicide in going into the war that U.S. capitalization stock uh, took over that of all of Europe. It's taken over 90 years. And I don't think that's going to go away. Do you think stocks of capital are significant or not significant? I don't have much of it, but I happen to think it's really significant. So did most great powers in the past. Uh, then, just one more of this and move on and then wind up. Um, what about these shifting uh, growth rates? What about these rising economies? I, I, regard them, I regard the debate here with a fair amount of suspicion and unease. But we might as well take a look at the fondest, most overproduced um, bar chart since uh, it came out in December 2003. The Goldman Sachs study team on the rise of Brazil, Russia, India and China with the collective 
acronym of the BRICS. What they did, what the modelers, here in London actually, because that's where their strategy headquarters is, what the modelers did was to look at um, growth rates of the past five to ten years of these four big populous with middle class and now capital strong economies and factoring in a lot of the things that economists factor in projected the growth rates out. Uh, they projected it very far out, even when you look at all of the detailed footnotes about what they, what they made allowance for, etc., etc., this is, this is too far out. Um, it, it begs lots of questions about whether China is going to be in one piece in ten years' time. But should the world manage to get into relatively harmonious international trading system without major war or environmental catastrophe of great size, then um, it's not just Goldman Sachs. The Economist Intelligence Unit thinks that China will, be, will have a higher total GDP uh, than the United States uh, by 2025. Wherever we are on this, and so I'm begging you not to regard these as you know, really strong forecasts and unlikely to change, wherever we are, what I would conclude with saying is um, the power balances as between national units in this decade have been moving faster than at any other time since the 1890s, when at the beginning of that decade, the U.S. economy overtook that of late Victorian Britain, and by the middle to end of that decade, imperial Germany overtook. And Great Britain went from being the largest economy, industrial economy in the world to third largest. There's nothing really the British could do about it. So while I'm saying some things are recoverable, and I'll say a little more about that when I now move on to the third chessboard, long-term growth rates, if nothing gets in the way, are, are things that four-year presidencies can do very little about. You might actually kick-start the U.S. economy again to have growth rates of, for four years of, say, 3 to 3.5%. Three but if uh, India is growing at 8 to 9% and China 9 to 10%, then you just compound it out. And the shrinkage is very fast. The second chessboard there for a mixed sheet with more signs of weakness emerging despite the towering strengths. What about the third chessboard? The one that Professor Nye talked of as uh, soft power. A variety of indicators uh, about the attractiveness of one's country, the way in which you can persuade and bring in others, the way you can get partners to buttress what you want to happen. Now, if you go back and look at his works in the early 90s, you, you'll see, and I, I believe he's coming here, so you can ask him this question, just don't say that I asked you to ask the question. Um, you see that he played an awful lot of, put an awful lot of weight on things like cultural icons, uh, blue jeans, uh, Hollywood movies, uh, MTV, Marlboro Man, uh, indicators of the popularity of American youth culture in particular, and then the popularity of American business culture, the businessman, the business hotels, the business consultants. Um, 
I, I suspect, in fact, I'm pretty sure that if he goes back to you know, revise those books, he's going to be less convinced now. Indeed, he's going to really say, I got it wrong. I did not see how some years of an imperial presidency and a lot of clumsiness diplomatically turned a lot of what I saw were the attractive elements of the number one country into unattractive ones. Uh, now, uh, don't worry, we're finishing in a minute or two. The, the consolation is um, that you can measure uh, you know, aircraft carrier spending and GDP in all sorts of ways. So I could bombard you for another 20 hours with economic and military statistics. It's very hard to measure uh, if you like subjective things like a nation being less liked or more liked uh, it becomes impressionistic which is why um, the illustrations for this last chessboard are, are so brief still I want you to look at this just for a little while uh, the crowds who came out to see Wilson when he arrived in London and went off on to Paris were just staggering, staggering. You know, they, the, here was somebody who was going to get us out of our nonsense. If anybody had the chance for leadership, uh, intelligent, benign, creative leadership, there it was. Uh, we now know from books by people like Erez Manella and others that not only were it, was it the European liberals and the European social democrats who were looking hopefully to Wilson, it was the leaders of national independence movements all the way across the globe. They were streaming to Paris hoping to get an audience. Whether it was national independence leaders of uh, Czechoslovakia, uh, whether it was national independence leaders in India, whether it was the, Cong the Congress party in India, the national movement in, in uh, Egypt, uh, there they were. This man was incredibly important to them and what he said they respected. Uh, Ho Chi Minh was there asking for an audience with President Wilson in 1919. Didn't get one. And then Kennedy. And I haven't included FDR because he didn't travel so much, but... You get the point. These are American presidents who can go to different parts of the globe, north and south and east and west, and get the crowds coming out in rather fantastic adulation uh, because they had, not just because the guy looks so handsome, uh, they had pinned, yes, this guy, not that guy. <laughs> um, it's because they had pinned a large number of their hopes for future on this person and were willing to listen to and get ideas from and leadership from. Now what have we got? Where's Bush? He never goes to Porto Alegro. These are the anti-Davos, the anti-World Economic Forum protests in the southern port of Brazil which take place each end of each January to coincide with the, the uh, pinstripe bankers and world leaders meeting up the Alps on uh, man's mag magic mountain of Davos. Uh, U.S. security services now have to take most extraordinary measures uh, 
to make sure people don't get anywhere close. I'm going to talk with people in Berlin about their disgust at the new U.S. embassy plans, which involves a 200-yard clear firing zone around the embassy, right? The idea of walking into the embassy and asking for a visa or doing something like that, there's no chance. Talk about a bunker. It's in the right place. Uh, the other indicators, you've seen them uh, disappointing to all who really wish the U.S. could think of a better way of communicating with the rest of the world. But the six-monthly um, polling statistics of the Pew a charitable trust of Philadelphia from 30 countries, a thousand people uh, selected anonymously. It's, it's a te- 30 countries, a thousand people each. That's what is called a statistically significant. Um, uh, we needn't go into it. Um, what am I saying? Uh, I'm saying that the debate continues that um, it's, it's a complicated one and like the Indian sages feeling blindly the different parts of the elephant, some of them prefer what to describe it in one way and some in the other. Some are optimists, some are pessimists. Some are, is a glass half full, is a glass half en- empty. Uh, but the fact remains that uh, the U.S., uh, occupies a very peculiar position in world history and in the big sweep of history since 1945. It has massive military muscle on that chessboard, even though there are attempts to gnaw away at it. It has a significantly lower amount of capacity to influence the rest of the world to do what it wants on economic and trade. Side and it has lost terrific advantage in the capacities it did have to lead on the other side. So I'm going to uh, leave you, if I may, ladies and gentlemen. I, I didn't bring it along. I should have. It's a, but I want you to imagine it. It's it's a three pie chart um, illustration, and one is of world population with the American slice in it. One is of share of world GDP, total GDP, with the American slice in it. And one is with share of uh, total defense spending. And when you look at them, and I get my undergraduate students who have never seen anything like this before, when you look at it, you think, righty, there's 4.5% of the world population, so it's not even one twentieth, with 20% of the world product, good, but it was different 40 years ago, and 52% of world defense expenditures. Now, my economist friends, as you can tell, I have lots of economist friends, uh, my economist friends talk about things like convergence. So my last question to you is, how long into the 21st century, ladies and gentlemen, do you think that a country with less than 5% of the world's population and a fifth of the world's product, possibly going down a little, can carry the defense expenditures of more than half of total world defense expenditures right through 
the century. Somewhere along that line, convergence is going to occur. And I don't think the convergence is going to be that the U.S. will have 52% of the world's population. Thank you very much, Paul. Um, there you see why uh, Professor Kennedy is one of the world's leading thinkers on international affairs, not just one of its leading international historians. Oh, and I want to push you a bit further in that direction, the intersection between history and the future, Paul, just to get the discussion started. Now, very much of what you said in, in your excellent lecture um, was about change and what I'm wondering about is how do you measure change, and particularly in terms of what we can see in the future. Now, I was fascinated, of course, seeing this uh, rather outclassed um, uh, Soviet, uh, former Soviet Navy ship steaming past my home village on the Norwegian west coast heading for China. And that indicates change to some extent, that these things are happening, that China is taking up a position in the world that the Soviet Union at least aspired to play during the Cold War. But if we think about this in, in strictly military terms, what I'm wondering is this. How is that change likely to happen? Because if we think about um, the current military spending levels that you outlaid in your, um, in your talk, if the current spending levels on a global scale continue, then of course... Uh, the rest of the world, China included, would never catch up with the United States. I mean, the American preponderance of power will increase and continue to increase well into the future. But what's so interesting about this is that even if U.S. military investments are cut by roughly 50%, then the Chinese would catch up, but sometime in the 22nd century, probably towards the middle, the middle part of it. So what is it that we are looking for here in terms of agents of change. Now, one easy postulation, of course, would be that the rest of the world would be sick and tired of paying for the American, um, uh, the American deficit, both in terms of trade and in terms of the, the um, government expenditure. Uh, do you see that as the most likely scenario? And so, if, if so, what do you see as the um, economic mechanisms that would, would, would come into it? Or do you simply see an overall change in terms of the strategic picture in which it would become less easy to convince Americans um, that this is the role that the country was going to play internationally? Because this is, I think, one of the key issues here. I think it would be very difficult for a Chinese government, any Chinese government, to persuade its population, if they ever bother to ask it, um, that it would uh, fill a role, a global role, similar to that of the United States. What's so interesting with China today is that even the communist dictatorship that is in, in place at the moment have to be very, very careful with suggesting uh, too big an, an increase in terms of military expenditure out of fear that the new business class will turn against them. So I'm wondering what, what are the scenarios in terms of change that you, that you see at, 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 at this point? Well, is, there, is there something more than, 
the joint uh, Russian-Chinese threat to the Norwegian West Coast. I mean, this is something broader here that is happening that, that you want to point us towards uh, in terms of the immediate future. Well, your last four words um, make me hesitate in what I thought was a reply building up in my you know, the exhausted remnants of my brain cells. Uh, because another thing I should have uh, said at the beginning, ladies and gentlemen, as, as introduction to thinking about this, is are, are we talking about uh, immediate? Are we talking about medium term? And what do you mean by that in the course of the next decade? Or are you talking about a longer term? Um, and that's worth puzzling at because... Um, is this on? No, it's on now. You kicked it. I kicked it. That's worth uh, puzzling about uh, because that's often the way business managers have to think. Uh, you get a call on a Sunday night at the stock market and Tokyo is going nuts and it already opens 12 hours before uh, New York hour opens. So you're going to have a bad morning next, next Monday morning. That's short term. Uh, medium term might be a certain type of investment or training program. Long term, like that which... British Petroleum does is 30 to 35 years out without seeing a return. So I, I, unless there are these massive internal convulsions in China and India, and some people worry that there will be, uh, I don't see that there uh, And because the adaptive technology uh, and transfer technology is going so fast, I don't see, but there can't be any more, any further. I think there will be further shift in the world economic and increasingly technological balances. And it will no longer just be at the level of, you know, gardenware or poison toys or whatever. It will be, will be higher tech and higher tech uh, materials. Will that have a spin back loop on America's relative strategic and power position? Yes, over time. Uh, you see, one of the things which, in, in your early question, the early part of the question about, you know, would the rest of the world get tired of uh, you know, bankrolling the United States and uh, letting that deficit continue, or would the Americans get tired of paying for very large uh, defense expenditures? In, in a way, Anna, there's a sort of hidden contract here, which is we'll overspend on defense. We won't pay for it ourselves in taxes. We float U.S. Treasury bonds. They will soak up the surplus manufacturers which you have dumped in our market. And uh, therefore, you will be able to uh, accumulate those, uh, those capital reserves in the form of dollar-denominated stuff. So long as you're interested in and willing to pay for dollar-denominated stuff, you're not going to have a crisis, a really true crisis of, of the U.S. dollar. Um, so this, this thing can go along for quite, probably quite a large number of years. On the other hand, uh, the size of the capital flows are now 
so big that you know it just got the folks at the Bank of International Settlement shaking their head. When you get a capital flow movement in 24 hours, which is equal to half of the total GDP of the EU, it may well be that thinking about these issues in terms of national relative power is swamped in the other way. There, I will console those who think this is an evasive um, reply to a, a, a nasty question uh, by uh, reminding some of you who still do international history in the 1920s that the head of the British, per, permanent head of the British Foreign Office, A. Crow, wrote a lovely memo about 1923 where he said, we're pretty good at seeing the long-distance future. We can see that the Soviets are going to survive. We can see a rise of the United States decade after decade. Uh, we can see the stirrings of nationalism. So we're pretty good at looking at a long-distance future. And we're pretty nifty at dealing with a diplomatic crisis in, in the Dodokanese or something like that. What we're really awfully bad at is getting anywhere close to what is likely to happen, but we won't know it in the next five years. And if you think of uh, a panel like this uh, meeting in this august room it, in um, on February the uh, 5th, 1989, and people talked about where the, where the next few years was going to go, uh, you get what I'm saying. It's incredibly difficult to do it at that level. Mm. Okay, thanks for the nasty question. <laughs> uh, <t> <coughs> I have more. Oh, no, 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 no. No, no, no. I've got to discipline the audience, and I can't do it if you ask more questions. Uh, I, got, I, I had two sneaky hands that went up early, so I'm being a sneaky chair. I'll ask Mary Calder to be one, and then Alan's scared to be number two. I think your sneaky hand went up, Alan. Uh, Mary first. I'll take these two. I'll take them singly first, yeah. Uh, take the mic, Mary, because people can't hear you at the back there. I wonder whether defence spending is a good measure of military power. It might be exactly the opposite. Uh, that Nimitz carrier that you showed us, if, if we take Nye's definition of power, the ability to influence people, how does that Nimitz carrier enable the U.S. to influence people? If you look at what's happening in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, the U.S. doesn't seem to be able to use all its military might to carry much influence. It's not doing very well in defeating uh, its enemies there. Uh, you could argue that it's actually the opposite, that uh, the level of military spending causes the deficit and actually prevents the U.S. Mm. from deploying the troops that it needs to deploy okay. to have military Thanks, influence. Mike. Shades of the Baroque Arsenal there, I think, coming out. Oh. There's no doubt that uh, the deficit could be reduced substantially if the Pentagon's defense budget was reduced substantially, and then if they used those savings to get something more of a balanced budget to please the markets and the dollar. Uh, in regard to... In regard to whether it's uh, useful or counterproductive, I think it all depends on where you're sitting and what is happening in the world circumstance. <coughs> there are times when uh, it, it seems this is a massive, wasteful investment that is, is not repaying itself at all. 
And it also seems further, here I come on to Iraq and Afghanistan, which you raised, that you might have put your monies in the wrong equipment in any case. What can that giant Nimitz class carrier do? Uh, the Navy people run and tell you all the marvelous things it can do from you know, supporting um, rescue teams of, uh, in tsunami destroyed villages, etc. Uh, that's good public relations. Uh, and it's quite clear to me that you could do a discriminate analysis of the U.S. defense budget and have it still very effective uh, without uh, the massive overload and the top-heavy hamper of the 14 carrier task groups. On the other hand, um, when real crises come and you can put one or two of those groups in the Persian Gulf or in the eastern end of the Mediterranean, you suddenly say, my goodness, uh, this is rather convenient for us, and uh, especially if you are you know, Japanese oil tankers coming out of the Gulf, this is extremely convenient. So it, it really does depend on much on the eye of a beholder and where the beholder is sitting, even though I would grant your the major thrust of what you're saying is that an awful lot of this is counterproductive and inexpensive, and it also gives this impression that we have the cowboys in charge of the world rather than the Woodrow Wilson peacemakers. Okay. Uh, the man in black. Um, sorry, go. coming on from that. Um, we have presume that these carrier groups can deliver shock and awe of a great order to many third Speak world... Speak up, Alan. People can't hear you. Is it working? Uh, I, I just thought these, these carrier groups could deliver shock and awe against Middle East states and other states, which would be very effective, but uh, the things I want to ask about, because after you do all these statistical charts, and I enjoyed them very much, I mean, one reaction was so what, because there are two things that didn't really come up. First, you might be able to use this firepower against third world states, but in the modern world, you look at the big powers with nuclear weapons, you've got a kind of stalemate, so you're not really replicating the kind of great power scenes that you had in the 19th or 18th century. So among the, the really big powers, Presumably you're not looking to any kind of full-scale war. Uh, and what's really going to upset your statistics is how they operate when you've got terrorists and, you know, Al-Qaeda and uh, people like that. Then, you know, do you actually find that you're in a totally different scenario and then these figures to a certain degree uh, become rather less relevant. Mm. The other chart that you didn't put up was one uh, showing GDP per capita or standards of living. Uh, and uh, the changes in the world that might uh, influence soft power would just be how citizens of the United States and of Europe uh, and other parts of the world have higher standards of living. Uh, I mean, and recently, I think last weekend, uh, we were told in the newspapers that the British standard of living was about to overtake the American one uh, for the first time, perhaps the first time ever. Uh, well, the first time in the 20th century since 1917 and 45. Uh, but surely... Uh, people's perceptions of the standards of living because after all states like Switzerland and Norway are the highest standards of living in, in Europe today uh, they, they had even during the age of imperialism if people become more interested in domestic affairs, happiness, indexes standards of living uh, this might very much affect the way they look at defence spending and think that however, if they're happy and if Europe's happy with soft power, for example, and the EU doesn't want to spend any money on defence or send troops to Afghanistan or anywhere else, this is surely an index that perhaps might be relevant. Okay, great. There's a couple there. Yeah. I think 
Oh, yeah, I? Okay. Yeah, well, yes, I could have added more statist statistics, pie charts, etc. Uh, it, it's very hard to do any of those measures, as you just pointed out to me, for uh, terrorists. You, you can't measure terrorist cells in the way you measure, you know, air squadrons or something. So you've just got to recognize that they're, they're out there and they're posing a threat, but it's not a fully measurable threat, which is why the defense experts are in uh, such disagreement with each other about how serious a terrorist threat is. As for nuclear, I think that what seems to me to be emerging, though I'm nervous to say this with these two guys on my um, left-hand side, is that they become uh, an additional uh, element which makes it more and more difficult for the U.S. to put pressure upon another country. So they begin to add to the multipolar mix which is emerging. I would say right now what's interesting to me is we, we can't influence Russia to do what it doesn't want to do. We can't influence China to do what it doesn't want to do. We can't influence India and then or Tehran. So that if you're talking about the capacity to influence others on the world scene to do what you want them to do, we've seen a significant erosion of that in the past 25 years. Standards of living, comfort levels with or without lots of uh, armaments, uh, it is a debate. I, I think that uh, Bob Kagan was probably put his finger on it. The Americans prefer heavier levels of spending on um, military security. The Europeans prefer heavier levels of spending on economic and social security. Uh, as I say, there's a hidden contract there, yeah. which means that nobody really wants to alter that system very much. Yeah. Uh, and so it will go on until possibly some significant unforeseen but significant mm -hmm. crack. Yeah. My colleague here. Just a, uh, quick just a quick comment on that one, because uh, this is very close to the core of the issues here, isn't it, um, with regard to how change could come about. I mean, it seems to me that in what Professor Kennedy is saying, the key element is really that American power is not threatened by terrorism. It's not threatened by uh, strikes against American power that will, will not threaten the coherence of that power. And with major war unlikely, but not completely ruled out, what that points to, to me, is that change in a way would have to come from within in terms of the American position in the world, more than in a systemic sense. That we are more talking about something here, if we can foresee scenarios for change, that would look more like the political reorientation in the Soviet Union in, in the 1980s, uh, deciding not to be a superpower anymore, or a hyperpower, now in the American case, the hyperpuissance, um, and therefore, therefore walk, walking away from it, rather than run through scenarios that really incorporate profound changes in the international system. I think that's right. I think it's quite possible we will see um, 20 years of... Uh, variation along a spectrum which historically viewed will not seem terribly difficult. It will be a sort of, you know, Gladstone and Aberdeen spectrum that, that there'll be a, an administration in Washington which will tend more to the military security 
than other elements of security. There'll be a successor administration which will tend more to multilateralism and international institutions. But on the whole, this sort of contract and the umbrella issue of other richer countries hiding under the U.S. strategic umbrella but helping to pay for that umbrella could go on with not much real significance, quite different from the real significance of the transformation of a desperate Soviet elite Mm -hmm. after 1987. Mm -hmm. Okay, I've got three. I've got a gentleman in a white shirt up there, then a gentleman down here, then another one up there. Yeah, please, sir. My question is slightly linked to what Anna and Alan were asking about. It's on the public opinion section and the soft power section of what you were talking about. Firstly, you seem to imply, you flashed Wilson, JFK, and you appeared at least to imply that the current American unpopularity of sorts is completely unprecedented, is new. But um, but Wilson didn't end up that popular even in Europe. And surely there's, in some respects, particularly if one goes beyond the straight poll ratings and looks at the broader politics in major democracies, in, in many respects, America is much stronger in terms of soft power in Western democracies than it used to be. In the post-war era, you routinely got Stalinist parties in large parts of Europe, essentially opposing the Cold War. You had at least very powerful wings for lots of non-Stalinist socialist parties that also opposed the Cold War. Um, You've got these parties getting very, very substantial majority um, sections of the vote. India, the world's largest democracy, you um, you had extremely hostile policy, I would say, certainly very neutralist, uh, at least to the United States, and is now in much better terms. so to what degree is this weakness, this weakness in, in the democratic world a new thing? Or in, in some respects, particularly if you look at the party system, is there not a case that actually the whole system, even within the democratic world, no longer has the same idea of breaking with the US that was so strong throughout much of the Cold War? Also, in terms of American will to resist, isn't that the fundamental issue? Like the reason why America is, quote, losing in Iraq owes a great deal to the fact that now a majority of the American public want to pull out. So that um, the most important soft power, in a sense, is that soft power that is necessary within the United States itself to achieve wars. Okay. <laughs> right. Thank you. I can see all these international historians dotted around the audience like old-fashioned Trotskyists, you know, kind of <laughs> asking these lengthy, very detailed historical hey. questions with references to Gladstone. Paul, over to you. Thanks. Thank you. I, I couldn't... Uh answer the the half of that. Uh, (laughs) um, Just get the big picture right, I think. Look, it's... uh, Perhaps we should have stayed with those figures uh, (laughs) because actually they are cross-currents and counter-currents and while a broad trend among say 25 or 24 of the Pew uh, measured countries' public opinions has burned to see a decrease in popularity. The question is, do you like or dislike the United States? It's a fairly simple question. Then they have been, uh, you know, pointers in the other direction. And given the prominence of the U.S. and given the different concerns so many different countries have about what they want from the U.S. or what they see in the U.S., it's not surprising. It's not surprising that uh, Indian policy attitudes and public attitudes are much more pro-American now than they were 20 years ago. Uh, the country which, um, where the percentage leaps up most is right way down to the bottom. It's Nigeria, 
Uh, I don't know whether it's a good thing or not. Uh, I don't know what they, they know about U.S. policy that we don't know. Um, but you're right to say that they are, they are, they are, there's contrary evidence here. And in a lecture like that, I could only give the big sweep, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. Okay, the gentleman here. Uh, yeah. You can take two or three more and then we'll have finished. In, may I please ask you a brief question? Excellent. In your otherwise, in your excellent lecture, you did not mention the word Taiwan in describing the potential United States-Chinese conflict. Now, my understanding is the United States has, to, has guaranteed Taiwanese security under its constitution, and Taiwan is making noises towards independence. Do you think both the public opinion in America would support we be prepared for direct military, American military intervention in the event uh, of Taiwanese independence. And furthermore, does the United States have a capacity even to do that anymore? Thank you very much, sir. Paul. I'm really not sure what the, uh, the answer is about American public and Taiwan. I get the sense it's uh, apart from a particular lobby and a particular groups associated chiefly with the Republican Party it has gone off most people's radar screens. So if there was a crisis in the Taiwan Strait, you would have all of these broadcasters explaining where the Taiwan Strait was and why it was interesting <laughs> and what our, what our contractual obligations were. Uh, and then I, I'm not quite sure what uh, the Senate would do. Uh, it would be as, almost as puzzled as the public. Uh, can the U.S. Uh, – could it do what it says it – ultimately might have to do, I think um, with diminishment. Uh, and it's, in some ways it's almost uh, helping to reduce its own capacities by moving into weapon systems which are much more easily imitative than, say, big aircraft carriers. And uh, it's, it, it doesn't really know how to deal with those submarines at all. It doesn't know how to deal with the sea-skimming missiles, which are now going 304 kilometers out. Paul Bracken, my colleague at Yale, calls this a sea-denial sea denial policy. You deny the U.S. Navy the desire to come in all that close. Just the other day, you might have spotted it, there were announcements that the U.S. Navy testing... Uh, grounds uh, in Virginia had tested a hyper-fast, totally solid steel missile which shot um, with kinetic energy, no explosion, 300 miles and could just you know, knock a hole in anything. And the Admiral Concern says we always have to give our American boys the best weapons possible. And I thought, well, if they can get a lump of steel and find a mechanism to fire it as a very dangerous pointed piece 300 miles out, it isn't really going to be too long before other people get it like that. So I think that what you're going to find is increasingly a combination of American public displaying less and less interest in a commitment and some parts of the American armed services dis displaying less and less enthusiasm for getting anywhere close to the Chinese or Taiwanese coast. Perhaps the Taiwanese business class would have solved it all by then anyway, because we'll be living in China, I should think. Yeah. 
Yeah, gentleman up the back there. Uh, much of the attention right now in the U.S. is being focused on the nomination and the presidential race. Professor Kennedy, I get the impression you're a betting man and uh, wanted to know <laughs> if yeah, you'd like to uh, predict who would be in the White House next year. And the most important part of the question is, does it really matter who will be there? Um, can they ultimately affect uh, the downturn that you're talking about? And... Uh, according to what chessboards can they play a role in. Okay, Paul, back to your uh, tipping days. Uh, it's a really good question. Does it really matter? Mm. I mean, in a sense, uh, looking at some of these broader trends and Goldman Sachs figures, etc., you'd say whoever's in the White House, you're talking about global shifts, and there's not much that even a very powerful president can do. On the other hand, I thought I indicated one or two areas with regard to uh, getting greater fiscal stability, improving the American image, uh, a diplomacy which is non-confrontational or, or non-isolationist, where you never know, you might get a lot of benefits for rather small-scale concessionary and uh, diplomatic policies. I, I have to tell you that um, I... I uh, yes, I used to work as a bookies runner, and then I used to work as a settler behind the counter for many years. So you get to know all the foolish things that punters can do, usually giving us money. Um, so it's always wise, at least when it comes to something emotional like um, presidential election, to have some sort of... Um, counter strategy in where you're placing your money. Um, that is to say, uh, right now I think there is, I think Obama and McCain are almost going to be, each of them, four to five at, at Ladbrokes. Four to five. Uh, four to five. <laughs> uh, different parts of the country are going to go different ways. It could be this Obama phenomenon just just goes ahead and ahead and ahead in a way which has, seems to have happened in the California uh, polls over the past 10 days. Uh, but I come back to my point. This is my last bit of advice to these worthy citizens if they want to make money. Um, don't put your money where your heart is. Uh, the last presidential election, uh, we had a we had a group of all of our friends around sitting there getting the beer or wine or whatever out uh, to watch as long as was necessary through the night. Uh, my wife is a, comes from a family of dedicated Rooseveltian Democrats. Um, all the rest were Democrat apart from a certain professor of Cold War history, I think. Uh, and... Um, if you remember, the first uh, results came in from Massachusetts, mm -hmm. and it looked as if uh, Democrats were, were way ahead, and all of my nice liberal Democratic friends were drinking uh, Pinot Grigio. That's what you do when liberal Democrats sink their head <laughs> in Pinot Grigio. Uh, uh, then, about an hour or so later, things started to get murky, and I noticed that the attacks were turning onto my very valuable red burgundies. They needed something <laughs> more solid. By the time the Florida thing came in, 
my scotch was disappearing very quickly indeed. And so they, as they were packing up and looking very gloomy, I said brightly, uh, as you may know, I can't vote, uh, so I might as well get some advantage out of it. Uh, I said very brightly, well, it's a pity I didn't, I did want a Democrat in the White House, but at least we've got, you know, at least another wine until all through the fall of next year. And my wife turned on me and said, what? I said, well, um, I actually, uh, I phoned a good friend of mine in London and asked him to get the going price um, for George Bush. And it seemed reasonably attractive to me so I put 750 quid on George Bush to win. Um, everybody was furious. And I kept saying, but, I mean, you guys keep drinking such a lot of my wine. This is the only way I could get back. And in any case, you're all going to f- go to bed feeling awful. And I'm going to go to bed feeling half awful and half pleased. Rest my case. Before Arnie uh, moves the vote of thanks, I also want to tell one little story about Paul. Um, It's nothing to do with Newcastle. It is, I'm afraid. (laughs) As you know, Paul is a a born and bred uh, Geordie, and I, I took him as a form of torture to watch Arsenal play Newcastle. Now, he just said, you should never put your money where your heart is. Now, Paul, I thought I saw a certain professor from Yale put some money on Newcastle at 7 to 1. Now, well, anyway, we can talk about that. Anyway, over to you, For those of you, and I saw many here, including my dear co-director, who started for the very first time during the lecture to scribble furiously when Paul came up with the odds for the presidential presidential election, (laughs) you may... You may need to put, put those, um, if not away, at least to look at them a little bit longer before you decide where you're going to put your money. Speaking of which, two years ago, when um, the center got this wonderful gift that enabled us to set up the Philip Roman Chair in History and International Affairs, Mick and I were thinking about, so who should we invite for the first round uh, for this um, fairly prestigious, reasonably well-endowed chair at LSE? And even though Mick and I do not always agree, we could agree on this one. The one we really wanted to have here for the first year was Professor Kennedy. And we are exceptionally grateful, Paul, that we were able to trick you into coming um, for this year. Um, You are a wonderful friend. You are someone who uh, rightly has become seen, not just in the United States and in Britain, but globally as one of the key people in debating not just international history, as I said earlier on, but the international affairs of the present and of the future. Uh, We couldn't have got a better person in for the first year of the Philip Roman Chair. We're exceptionally grateful to you for spending the year with us here in London and exceptionally grateful for the great lecture that you gave today. Thank you very much. And for those of you who want more of this, we have the second...